Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Psalms and find Psalm 141. Psalm 141. This morning we complete our construction of a model or a pattern for prayer. And when we began some four weeks ago, we confessed that our prayers more often closely resemble a drive-through order made during the heat and madness of a summer day at Chick-fil-A. For those of you who work at Chick-fil-A, you can be familiar. Rather than reverent conversations with the holy God of the universe. It seems as Americans, or at least Western Europeans, we tend to rush. We like to rush. It's what defines us. And now, with the assistance of social media enabling truncated communication, much of our dialoguing can be done with our thumbs, using nothing more than emojis, GIFs, and textees, right? For those of you familiar, we'd sooner send an SMS than call, because if you send a text message, it means that you can multitask. You can work on one project while carrying on a conversation with someone over here while having a second conversation, potentially more, with somebody else. The sad fact is, church, many people today just don't know how to pray what to pray, or why they should pray. And that's people in the church. And so by looking to God's Word, we began building a model for prayer that followed the example given us in the Scripture as evidenced in the prophet's practice and Christ's teaching. Because clearly our struggles in the now aren't new. In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus addressed this very issue when approached by one of his disciples who asked, Lord, Teach us to pray. And Jesus responded with words that I know are familiar to us all because we've heard them sung, we've ourselves prayed them, heard them exposited over the last four weeks when Jesus answered, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. So in this prayer that we know today is the Lord's Prayer, as in the prophet's practices, we noted together that praise is the launch pad. Father, hallowed be your name. Or Father, may your name be treated with the highest honor, set apart as holy. So as we enter so to speak, the presence of the God of the universe, the sovereign of the solar system, the first thing that we ought to acknowledge and be aware of is Him. And then, like eyes, shocked by the brilliance of the sun, gradually adjust and are able to take in their surroundings, we immediately become conscious of our unworthiness. And thus we concluded that praise naturally, necessarily, leads to confession as Jesus Forgive us our sins. Whereupon, as we saw last week, God's great grace in forgiveness gives rise to thanksgiving, which if you were with us, we noted isn't explicit in Christ's words, but its spirit is infused throughout as reflected in the recognition of the one praying that God alone can give each day's needed bread, forgiveness of sins, and protection from temptation. Thanksgiving in the scriptures is is as we concluded last week, far more than voiced appreciation for gifts received in the now. It's a posture of dependency 
on a sovereign God. And so thus far, our prayer pattern begins with praise, followed by confession, then thanksgiving, and then finally, as I'm sure you've guessed, petition, which is the element that we're going to study in our psalm for today, which is Psalm 141. So with that said, and your Bible is hopefully open to Psalm 141, I invite you to follow along as I pray this psalm for us now. Psalm 141. So would you pray with me? Oh Lord, I call to you. Come quickly to me. Hear my voice when I call to you. May my prayer, may our prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands, our hands, be like the evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Yet my prayer is ever against the deeds of evildoers. Their rulers will be thrown down from the cliffs and the wicked will learn that my words were well spoken. They'll say, as one plows and breaks up the earth, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of the grave. But my eyes are fixed on you, O sovereign Lord. In you we take refuge. Do not give us over to death. Keep us from the snares that they've laid for us, from the traps set by evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I, we, pass by in safety. Amen. Amen. Church, Psalm 141 is, surprise, surprise, believed to be a Davidic psalm. And to this end, you'll notice, hopefully in your Bibles, the reference to David there in the line preceding verse 1, the title, so to speak. And of all the songs attributed or prayers attributed to Israel's second king, this one is without detractors as grammatically, structurally, and contextually. All the elements in Psalm 141 are consistent with David's life and writings. And scholars figure that this song was likely written in the period of Absalom's rebellion as reflected by the nature of David's petitions, which are fourfold and that will serve as our principal points today. Because in them I believe we find direction as to what to pray for. Or the petitions that we ought to prioritize. But before we consider David's petitions. I'd like to make clear why these biblically referenced requests are so important. So as I'm sure many of you are familiar. As we heard referenced in our children's sermon. Jesus gives words recorded in John 14.12 where he declares this. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And then again in Words that sound very similar. Matthew's gospel records them. Chapter 21, verse 22. Following Christ's cursing of the fig tree, he informed his disciples, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, which 
if you recall from that portion of Scripture, that it shriveled and died following Christ's curse. But he says, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. And then we come to the kicker, as if we hadn't received one already. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. <laughs> it would appear from these two passages that prayer is the currency, if you will, that operates the divine vending machine. And all you need to do is to put your request in in faith, hit the button with belief, and you'll get whatever you want, right? Now, without going into a detailed explanation of how such a limited, literal reading of this passage reflects a sinful, self-focused, desirous of personal glory, not God's, let me just remind us of the qualifier appended to Jesus' grand offer that we tend to overlook, don't we? But it's contained in that phrase, in my name, in John chapter 4, and elsewhere in John's letters as according to his will. Now, in Jesus' statement, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. He wasn't suggesting that his name was the special password, like open sesame or please, by which we encourage preschool petitioners to ask and then receive guaranteed positive response. Rather, I believe that this qualifier was intended to eliminate such empty interpretations because Jesus' name isn't merely a reference here to the five letters that are ordered in such a way as to be pronounced as they are, Jesus. But they're a description, church, of his person. In the Bible, when God's name is described, it's the, the thing, for lack of a better term, that bespeaks his character. This is why David declares in Psalm 138, I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name. Why? For your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And thus Christ's name conveys his character. It's more of a mindset on the, on the basis of those considering it than it is a moniker referencing the one so named. It, it's a way of understanding and communicating understanding of who God actually is. So here's why that's important. When we're invited to pray for anything and we're promised that we'll receive it, that which we are guaranteed is always only that which is consistent with who God is. So let me say that again. When we are invited in the scriptures to pray for anything and promise that we will receive it, that which we are guaranteed is always only that which is consistent with who God is. And John makes this caveat even clearer, as I referenced earlier, in his first letter, chapter 5 and verse 14. 1 John 5, 14, he writes this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. So how do we know, as the consequent question, how do we know what's consistent with Christ's character or his divine will? Well, I could tell you where you can look to find out, right? The place where he's chosen to reveal both <laughs> the scriptures, his word, 
Which is why in Psalm, the psalm that we're studying today, Psalm 141, I believe, is revealed a first request or petition, a plea to be heard. A plea to be heard. David begins, O Lord, I call to you. Come quickly to me. Hear my voice when I call to you. Have you ever been alone? Yeah, and maybe, maybe you're the last person to get picked up from a party. Not that that ever happened to me and my parents were guilty of leaving me alone. Or you arrived at home at the end of a very long day and you found that the house was completely empty. Now, I can see a few faces thinking, yeah, that second scenario Andrew just mentioned, that's really not that bad of a thing. Give it time. Solitude leads to a sense of loneliness, doesn't it? Because we were designed, we were made to live in community. Even the most stoic of introverts eventually comes to a sense of loneliness. So have you ever felt alone? And it, it might not be that that sense of loneliness is tied exclusively to isolation, is it? Because you can feel totally alone in the midst of a crowd where you just don't fit. And you may even be the reason for the gathering and yet you still feel completely alone. Here in our text, fleeing from his son Absalom, David knew loneliness. He knew the desperation that came when facing insurmountable, seemingly so, obstacles. And so despite a sizable following, he cried out to the Lord to, to hear his voice. Because David knew that he, the Lord, was his only hope. Have you ever found yourself in a situation that looked totally helpless, beyond bleak? Yeah, maybe it had to do with your health or the health of a loved one or your family. I mean, it was a test result that revealed cancer or, or a relationship that's, that's wrecked. Or maybe the concern is spiritual and you have a child, a, a friend, a relative even, that's struggling with consequences of life decisions and you simply cannot get them to see the need that they have for the gospel. Friends, it's in times like these and others, as we cry out in desperation, what we need more than anything else in the world is the assurance that we've been heard. We need to know, kind of like the Comcast customer who's been on the phone for hours waiting to speak to an authentic human being, not an Android-driven, computer-generated voice. We want to speak to a human who we know can then help us, right? Only of infinitely greater significance and of infinitely greater assurance. When we pray, we need to know we've been heard by the God of the Bible. David pleads for God to hear him. And specifically in two ways. Both of which I believe constitute worship. So let me, let me explain. In verse 2 David prays. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands. Be like the evening sacrifice. In his first request David asks that his prayer be as incense. Now I'm sure that most of us are familiar, and, and, and you know, in, incense was a very common element in the worship practices of the Old Testament. Burned in the temple, the smoke was equated with people's prayers, as referenced later by John in his Revelation chapter 8 and verse 4. And thus, I believe David was asking for his words, spoken prayers, to be received as worship pleasing in God's sight. So as a question, do your prayers... When, if you pray, do they resemble worship? And I guess the answer, to be fair, would depend on how you choose to define worship. But it's 
is certainly something to consider. David asks for his prayers to be received as worship. And then along with his words, he also asks his actions be similarly received. The second request conveyed where David desires that the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So both of these actions, words spoken, hands lifted, constitute worship. And so what I believe David is doing here is acknowledging exactly who God is. He's the only one worthy of worship. And he's pleading that his prayers be heard. Prayers that are being offered in words and with actions that demonstrate his appreciation of who it is that he's addressing. And so in a sense, David reveals indirectly, albeit, but he reveals that worship isn't defined as much by practice as it is by attitude. A heart's recognition of who God is. Friends, as we approach the God of the universe, could there be a more pertinent prayer than this, that we be heard? And let's not miss the posture then in which this prayer should be offered. Worship with heads bowed, hands lifted. This is how we ought to approach the throne. And when we do, we can rest assured, as did David, that our request for an audience will be answered in the affirmative every time. So David prays, or begins, with a plea to be heard. He then presents a plea to be pure. A plea to be pure, which he frames with a dual focus, I believe, where the first is preventative. His first focus is preventative. Verse 3, David says, Set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. David clearly knows the, the reality that James later describes in his letter's third chapter when he discusses how with the tongue... We praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. Friends, if the house of God, the temple, needed its guards and its gatekeepers, how much more the man or woman of God, whose body is now the temple of His Holy Spirit? How true, church. And how hard is it for us to tame the tongue? How much heartache and confusion might we spare ourselves if we could only keep from speaking? You know, one of my favorite Proverbs is chapter 17, 28, where Solomon saw, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. And and he's thought discerning if he keeps his mouth shut. You know, sadly, I even struggle with the appearance of wisdom because I can't control my tongue. Can you? David prays for purity provided by the preventative measure of a guarded mouth, which, according to Christ, our Christ Jesus, is merely the gateway by which the king's second concern expresses itself, and that's the heart. Luke 6.45, Jesus established how the good man brings the good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, His mouth speaks. And this is why I believe David prays there in verse 4 that his heart will not be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not, he says, eat of their delicacies. King David knew he was weak. He knew his heart's tendencies. The man who'd been given everything, taken from a field watching sheep, 
to a palace overlooking a kingdom. David's eyes had wandered, hadn't they? Settling on something that wasn't his to possess, but his heart wanted it. And so he plotted, manipulated, and he murdered to make it his. David knew, the king knew just how weak he was. And so he prayed for God to prevent him from wandering like the sheep over which he had watched all those many years before. And church, we are no stronger than David. And in fact, those of us who would assume to be so only reveal how truly weak we are. For only a fool would make such a claim. There's not a person on this planet capable of controlling their heart's desires. That's why advertising is so effective, right? Not a person that can control their hearts because like attracts like. And as Paul, the apostle, established in Romans 3, we are all bent, broken, <laughs> depraved. We're not good, and thus the wicked hearts that we have can and will only be drawn to that which they are like, which is the evil against which David prays here. Church, our only hope for salvation rests in God alone. Why? Because he alone is good. And therefore, David prays for God to make him pure with this preventative focus. But he also has a corrective focus. There in verse 5, David asks, To have a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. And before anybody raises eyebrows in, in disbelief, yes, this is the king, the president, right? Praying for accountability. Oh! What a shocker. Politician desiring accountability, possibly remembering the hard but gracious rebuke of Nathan the prophet. And David clearly recognized that his position did not inoculate him from the need for oversight. He hadn't arrived at a place in his life where he no longer needed assistance. Rather, as king, David recognized that his need was greater than ever. And so he prays for God to correct him. For the Lord to send a righteous man to, to strike him. For in this act, it's a gesture I believe is mirrored in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Here the king is asking for aid, if you will, in the removal of eyes and the removal of limbs that are causing him to sin. Why? Because he recognizes it's better to go through life limbless, maimed, than it is to spend the rest of eternity in hell. And church, here, here's one of the glorious benefits of belonging to the body of Christ, the church. As a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant of the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ, we are governed by His laws as we exercise the gifts, rights, and privileges in them expressed in His word. So, what does that mean? This means we are called, brothers and sisters, and we have agreed to serve as one another's gospel mirrors. So the church isn't simply a social gathering. We don't exist to offer amenities for families needing wholesome alternatives to secular society. We don't come on Sunday to be taught how to manage our households, finances, and health. We exist to exalt God above all. And we can't do that if we're living in sin. So we're called to work together, giving, receiving kind, gospel-centered rebukes aimed at making us more like Christ. Why? Because this is God's will for us. 
So David prays that he be heard, to be pure. And then he makes a, a third, a plea to be consistent. A plea to be consistent both in life, in his living, and in death, his dying. Now, as pertains to life, in that last sentence of verse 5, David declares, yet my prayer is ever against the evildoers. So in reference to those wicked men who seek to draw David into their activities, the king pledges prayer consistently. By this promise, I believe to pray, I believe David is demonstrating his desire to repay these adversaries only in a God-pleasing manner. And one illustrative of consistency, because in verse 6 he notes how when their rulers will, not if, but when they will be thrown down from the cliffs, the wicked will learn what that my words were well spoken. Or, in other words, as one pastor theologian explains, when the calamity of these wicked men breaks in upon them, they will find that the psalmist, David, continues to do what? All that he has done all along. He speaks no harsh words in gloating over their misfortune. He still prays for them. He prayed before. He prays after. Consistent. And I have to wonder that if, if in these verses there's not a reference pertaining to Shimei, who's the son of Gera, who followed the king at a distance as he fled Jerusalem because of Absalom. And if you're familiar with that story, Shimei followed throwing rocks and dirt onto David's royal caravan. And Abishai, the king's bodyguard, told David, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go cut his head off. And David, what a tempting thing. But David wouldn't allow it. And choosing instead to suffer the indignity of being abused in the hopes that possibly, in David's words, possibly God will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I'm receiving today. David wanted only that which was consistent with God's will. And therefore he was unwilling to take any actions against his enemies but that which God desired. And church, should, the, should this not be our prayer as well? Should we not have this same prayer that God would make us consistent in life, that he would keep us faithful? And I find it so telling here that David conveys this prayer, this plea for consistency by way of reference to wicked men rather than his friends. Because we'd all be quick to want what David voiced here if it only pertained to the people we like, right? I mean, it's easy to be consistent and love others when they're nice and like me. If it only pertained to those we love, we'd like it, which is why I believe he asked for consistency as reflected by his treatment of his enemies. Do we pray for help in this way? David prays for God's enabling to be consistent in life and in death or in our dying. And I believe that's expressed in verse 7, which admittedly is a tricky verse to translate, but it's one that I believe is describing they're the bones of the saints, the hour that's referenced there, the pronoun, and where the plowed and broken earth that's described pictures soil that's prepared for planting. In other words, the grave. The, thus the bones there of the saints that are referenced. And, and this, they're referenced as seeds placed by faith in the soil of death, or that is the grave. And they then await those bones planted such. They await the glorious growth of new life that will come with the resurrection. And church, could there be a greater prayer to be prayed than that God would 
keep us consistent, not only in our life, in our living, but then also in our death, in that which leads up to it, our dying? And then could there be a greater hope than the knowledge that this prayer's fulfillment is God's desire as reflected in his gospel? Because in the gospel, we come to realize we don't save ourselves. We don't arrive at this point of self-awareness apart from divine enabling such that we can then decide that we need to be saved. Because if we could, and if our salvation came about as the result of our willing it, then what's to keep us from ever coming to a point in life where we now unwill it? You know, what would we do for those whose, whose minds begin to weaken in their old age and who begin to forget? Could we have any confidence in eternal security when someone no longer expresses their desire for it because they've experienced, say, a, a traumatic brain injury? I don't think so. Not if we want to be consistent because in our experience of salvation, if we've argued that God doesn't override our will, bringing us to a recognition of sin and a desire for salvation, if he doesn't override our will, then when our will changes, God would be inconsistent, wouldn't he? If he now prevented us from getting what we now want, which is no longer him, but an alternative. Church, this is why salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is good news. You didn't do anything to earn it, and therefore you can't do anything to lose it. So David prays to be heard to be pure, to be consistent. And then he makes a plea for protection. For protection. Verse 8 reads, But my eyes are fixed on you, O sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Don't give me over to death. Keep me from the snares they've laid for me, from the traps set by evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by in safety. Man, it'd be nice if we could claim that this prayer, this plea, petition, relates exclusively to the physical, meaning that the snares laid, the traps set reference here are actual obstacles prepared for the king. And, and that in this request, what we see promised is God's deliverance from all harm in the now. But we can't go that route if you're familiar with David's life and circumstances. This clearly wasn't his experience. And so I believe that the opposition described here, verse 8, is spiritual. That the snares and the traps, which certainly have physical correlates, are the temptations and the trials of our adversary. Now, the physical manifestation of these spiritual realities, they could be any one of a number of things in our lives, such as, just for the sake of argument, it could be an opportunity. An opportunity for promotion that will provide you with greater resources for your family, but it's going to require more time away from that family and possibly separate you from your church family with work requirements and expectations. Or it might be, say, social media, which gives you an opportunity to reconnect with old friends, but also exposes you to all manner of temptation with regards to gossip, relational garbage that will not edify others or bring glory to God. Now, this is a host of traps, church, that we face daily in our walk, in our effort to follow Christ. It's the weeds Jesus referenced in his parable of the soils. This is why David prays for protection. And friends, what a relief to know that God will protect us from all these things. Because later on in Jude's short letter, he writes, He is able to keep you from 
fallen and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He is able. And as Paul wrote to the church that met in Philippi, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Therefore, as he writes a little bit earlier in chapter 2, the God whose gospel saved us, the God whose gospel saved us works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Thus, we can continue to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Knowing that in all things, God works for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his son. So that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those that God has justified, he has promised to glorify. So does this mean that our prayers for protection will be answered with lives marked by health and prosperity in the now? Possibly. I hope and pray that that is your experience. And as I look around our sanctuary this morning, the fact that we're here attests to the fact that we are, church, materially, physically blessed. But this isn't the promise of our best life now. For if the best that we have to look forward to is now, life has got no reason. At the same time, I know that those who are here, many, your life does not reflect joy in circumstance. Rather, your life's colored by suffering. It's shaded by heartache. And so if you're here this morning and that's your life experience, don't be discouraged. Because what we see promised in this prayer of protection is a promise to protect you or to keep you from falling until the day when Christ returns and all the immoral muck and garbage that marks this fallen world will be destroyed. Church, when we pray as God's people, may we not forget who it is that we're addressing, the King of kings who deserves all glory, honor, and praise. And then may we not forget our station and that we are all in desperate need of God's forgiveness, which he guarantees, not because of what we bring, but because of his faithfulness. And that ought to serve as the grounds then for all our thanksgiving in all circumstances. And then may we make petitions in keeping with his will and consistent with his character as we plead to be heard, kept pure, made consistent and protected in his hands, Paul, until the day when he makes all things new. Church, isn't it awesome to know that our God's pockets are endless. You can ask for whatever you want. And it will be yours. And if there are any of you here this morning. Who do not know this God. Have not yet been brought to a place of conviction for your sin. There is one prayer I know. We may add to these. 
we may subsume it under that of protection, that God will answer every single time. And that is the plea for forgiveness and salvation. If you've not prayed that prayer, if you've not come to recognize a need for God to be your Savior, I pray that you, having heard the gospel, would respond by in grace and faith, and you would believe. Would you pray with me as we close? Lord God, we give you praise. Father, your pockets are boundless. You own everything. All that we are and have is yours. Father, and despite our sense of ownership evidenced in so many sinful expressions of selfishness, envy, lust. God, you remain God. Thank you for giving us your word. Father, thank you for drawing the boundaries of your pockets, so to speak, so that we may know what resides therein. And we may appeal for your generous provision from there. It's consistent with your character. It accords with your will. God, and we know that those are both revealed for us in your word. And we may use our minds and reason to come to understand that there is a God as we look to what he's made, as Paul says in chapter 1 of his letter to the Romans, we can know there exists a God that he creates, expects perfection, is holy. But Father, apart from divine revelation, we cannot come to an understanding or relationship with you. We cannot make our way from lostness to foundness apart from your grace. And you have given us that grace in the gospel. God, thank you for saving us. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for taking our sin upon yourself, dying in our place, and then rising again. Displaying the Father's acceptance of your once and for all sacrifice. Lord, this is the joy with which we live. This is the flag that we fly over our lives, so to speak. Father, might that flag fly high. Lord, might as we leave, we plea, and we leave knowing we've been heard because you promised to hear us. Father, nothing can keep you from hearing us but our sin. And you have forgiven us because we have confessed it. God, and we plead that you would make us pure, protect us, correct us, make us open to gospel rebuke so that we can live lives to your glory. And Father, we ask that you would Protect us. God, be our provision this week so that we might live to your glory. 
We praise you, Father, for being God. And we thank you for this privilege of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to stand now in time of worship through commitment.